Well, hopefully you're encouraged by that song, all right? Because he lives, we can, we can face tomorrow. Great, great song. And maybe some of you are worried. I'm not worried about tomorrow. I'm worried about today. Pastor Kevin, you got me worried. What are we, what are we talking about today? Um, well, listen, you know, we, we just believe in um, expository, uh, expositorily going through a scripture that means uh, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we just arrive to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, and this is the subject matter before us. And so the Bible doesn't shy away from these topics, and really neither should we. Uh, this is a very, very practical book, all of 1 Corinthians, to the church. How does a church live up to the calling that we have as saints? And he talks about all kinds of areas of our lives here on earth, and so it's very, very important for us not to skip these things, but to approach them um, and approach them with a certain amount of, of uh, wisdom as well. Um, and this is why I just decided I would just let parents know if you're a bit concerned. If you haven't yet had some of those big, important talks with your kids, then you might have more explaining to do after this sermon and next week's if you ha uh, haven't done that. So it might be best if you have the, them uh, leave the room. But I leave that up to you. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're looking at verses 12 to 20. And up to this point, Paul has been dealing with disorders in the church. Most recently, church disputes. That's what we looked at last time that we were together. Uh, Christians were taking other Christians to court. They were suing one another and doing it to, quote, wrong and cheat one another. And Paul had a major problem with that. They were taking their petty issues um, out of the church and into the world, out of the spirit arena where it could be arbitrated by godly spirit-filled men, and they took it into the secular arena. And if you remember, Paul's problem wasn't so much whether or not that they would get a, a fair hearing uh, by the world. He was more concerned with their witness to the world. And if you remember, he reminded them uh, really of three things. Their, their proper position as believers, that they, they will one day judge the world. They're one day going to judge angels. And so if those things are true... Don't they think they'd be able to, well, they'd be equipped to judge these small matters in the church? Also, he reminded them of the proper attitude that they should be having, an attitude of, of humility and forgiveness. If you remember, he said, why not rather just accept wrong? Why not just be cheated? Forgive them. And then he reminded them of, of a proper character, uh, that they are not of the unrighteous that will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you remember, there's a long list of in chapter 6 uh, that he gives us of sinful lifestyles. In verse 9, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. He says, but you're not like that. You've been washed, sanctified, and justified. Such were some of you, but now you're washed, sanctified, and justified. And he used that legal term, justified. They have been found not guilty in the courtroom of God, acquitted of all charges. And if that's the case, could we not seek to acquit uh, others of our charges against them? And if you remember, litigation was a big deal in that culture. Everybody had a hand in it. And so Paul here brings the focus back to the theme of legality, and he addresses another disorder in the church. This is the final disorder we're going to be looking at. 
and its church sexual purity. Now, the issue had been addressed at the beginning of chapter 5, if you remember. There was sexual immorality that was taking place in the church. And in chapter 5, Paul more, more specifically dealt with the church and their lack of handling that issue with church discipline. The disorder was that they weren't utilizing church <clears throat> discipline. They had allowed an incestuous relationship to take place. But while other members of the church may not have been sexually immoral in that specific way, they were in others. In fact, if you remember from our introduction, uh, the city of Corinth had a, a, a temple to the goddess of love at the top of the Acro Corinth, and it had 2,000 temple prostitutes, and they would come down, and they would be in the city. And so many of these uh, Christians, having come out of Corinth, had not been able to separate from that kind of lifestyle. In fact, it was so commonplace to sleep with a temple prostitute that became known as Corinthianizing. If you did that, you were just Corinthianizing. You're doing like the Corinthians do. And so many of them in the church were involved in various illicit sexual activities. And so Paul tackles the whole issue of sexual purity in the church. And he does it through the theme of legality and freedom in Christ. Sometimes that's referred to as Christian liberty. Have you heard that phrase before, our Christian liberty? The issue of Christian liberty is, is developed fully more later on in, in, this, in this letter, in chapters 8 through 10. But Paul introduces it here. It was, if you think about it, lawful for the Corinthians to drag one another into court, right? It was perfectly legal for them to do that. But what Paul was trying to get them to think about, was it the best thing to do? Was any harm being created by doing that? And it's with that kind of mindset that Paul approaches the issue of sexual purity in the church. So let's look at the passage. We're looking at the rest of chapter 12, verses 12 to 20. <clears throat> all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Let's pray. God in heaven, we recognize that we come to a uh, very important passage today, um, filled with important truths for your church. And Lord, I just pray today that you would be with us, that your spirit would be with us, that your spirit would illuminate truth for us, Lord. The, the, the church the, at large today, I think, has, has lost sight of these kinds of truths today, the importance of, 
sexual purity in the church. And so, Lord, just pray that you would just use this time today to reveal these things to us, Lord. Show us its importance, Lord, that we might um, know how to better live our lives in a way that truly glorifies you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope it's clear by reading through the passage uh, that Paul is, is chiefly concerned here with the sexual sin that is in the church. This, this passage, as I mentioned, contains some of the most fundamental teaching on sex in all of the Bible. Uh, and next week as well, as it will pertain particularly to marriage. Now, Paul begins the, with a phrase you saw there in verse 12, All things are lawful for me. Now, probably what was happening in Corinth is that had become the new slogan from the, 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 the church in Corinth. Uh, ra- really, their way to rationalize uh, their sin. Now, what they are saying is sort of true and sort of not. And I want to introduce today by, by talking about that. I think what they're trying to get to is this idea of Christian liberty. Um, and I'm going to share with you some uh, basic Christian liberty passages just to kind of get us going. I'm going to take you to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 to begin with. All right, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. And it says this, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Right there, Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, because the Judaizers had come into the church and they were trying to get uh, the Christians to sort of go back to Judaism because they believed Judaism was the way to Christianity. You had to kind of be circumcised. You had to kind of observe certain Jewish things and then you would be uh, Christian. But, but he says, no, no, stand fast in the liberty that you have with Christ. Don't go back to that yoke of bondage. The yoke of bondage being under the law. Another one is Romans chapter 7. Verse 6, okay, in Romans chapter 7, he says this, But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. All right, so there he says again, you've been delivered from that law, you've died to it, you, you were held by it, but now you serve in, in, in the Spirit. So it's not strict adherence to the letter of the law that saves you. Right? It is only God's grace which saves. Isn't that what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says? It's by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. And so maybe you've heard people use this phrase, I'm not under law, but under grace. Right? Have you heard that? I'm not under law, I'm under grace. And with grace comes freedom, liberty, right? Well, let's look at that phrase, you're not under law, but under grace. It comes from Romans 6. I'm going to take you there. We're not going to look at a slide. You're going to turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Romans chapter 6, verse 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. There's the phrase, okay? You're not under law, but you're under grace. Now, how do we live under grace? What's he talking about? Because if you, if you preach a doctrine of justification by grace and not by works, some say you encourage people to sin. That was the argument there coming from the Romans. In fact, Paul addressed that argument at the beginning of the chapter. He anticipates it. 
Okay, that's verse 14. If you go back to verse 1, look at the argument. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? If, if God's grace has come because I am a sinner and I needed his grace and I needed saving, well then, should I just sin more so that more grace might abound? Do you see this? It doesn't matter if you sin because you will be forgiven, right? And that forgiveness is an example of his grace. So why not sin and let grace abound? And what does Paul say in verse 2? Certainly not. That's a very harsh statement. May it never be. He uses it 14 times in his letter and in our passage today as well, you'll see. Why may it never be? How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? There it is. Freedom from the law is also freedom from what? Sin, right? In fact, that's what he said in verse 14. He said, yes, you're not under law, but under grace. But what do he say right before that in that very same verse? For sin shall not have dominion over you. So listen, freedom from the law is also freedom from sin. Sin cannot have dominion over you. It cannot be your master. And so when you go back to Galatians chapter 5, where we started, um, where he said, stand fast in that liberty, look at verse 13. Okay, he gets to that same argument. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. There it is. Don't use that liberty for the flesh. And that's basically what the Corinthians were, were saying here. All things are lawful for me because I'm not under the law. I have liberty. Christ died for my sins. I will be forgiven. And Paul says, don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. And that's what he's saying in this passage. So let's look at it. Look at verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are not helpful. Your, your translation might say expedient or profitable. The word in the Greek is sumphero. Sumphero. And those are, the, those are the words, expedient or, or, or profitable. Okay? All things are, are lawful, but they're not all expedient. They're not all profitable. Maybe to better understand what this word means, I can take you to a passage where it's used elsewhere, and I think it highlights the idea. It's used in an opposite way. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. Very familiar passage. You will remember this. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. Why? For it is more profitable, there's that word, soon Pharaoh, for you, that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. So, so there, uh, Jesus says, you know what? If your sin is cause, uh, sorry, your eye is causing you to sin, uh, rip it out, throw it away, because that's more helpful for you. That's more profitable for you. Why? Because you probably aren't going to go to hell then, because you you care that much about not sinning. But here, Paul says, yeah, all things are lawful for you, but they're not all helpful, right? I mean, in fact, you might need to pluck out your eye. That's basically what he's saying here, if it's causing you to sin. And why is that? Because sin is harmful, because it is damaging, and because it is destructive. And what specific sin is Paul talking about? Well, we read through the passage, it's clearly sexual sin. And so three points that we're going to look at here today, and the first point I just said is this, sexual sin is damaging. Sexual sin is damaging. 
That's his point. Yeah, all things are lawful. You, you could do that. Christ will forgive you, but it's harmful. It's damaging. If you think about it, no sin has ruined more lives, broken more marriages, shattered more hearts, even caused more disease than sexual sin. It has caused more destruction to people than drugs and alcohol combined. You can say, well, how can you, how can you say that? All you have to do is simply consider the sins that accompany sexual sin. It, it, it becomes clear why it's such a damaging sin. Because usually it's accompanied by things like stealing, deceit, lying, cheating, even killing. All we have to do is look at the example of David and his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. He coveted Uriah's wife, right? Then he stole her. He committed adultery with her. Then he tried to cover it up, so he, he lied about it. And that ultimately led to murder. He killed Uriah to cover it up. That's where sexual sin can lead. Not to mention uh, the bitterness, the hatred, the slander, the unforgiveness, all those things that remain long, long afterwards. In fact, if you think of David's sin again, what were the consequences for him? The child from the affair died. And then the sword never departed from his house. He was always in conflict. And maybe that's why the book of Proverbs warns against sexual sin so strongly. I want to take you there. Proverbs chapter 5. The women have been going through a study of, of Proverbs. I don't believe they're this far along just yet. Uh, but Proverbs chapter 5 is where we're going to look today. And, 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 and much of, of Proverbs in these chapters, 5, 6, and 7, deal with sexual sin. But I'm going to take you to the one little spot in the middle that talks about sex in its proper context. Sex between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And it's in chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. Beginning in verse 15. It begins with this analogy of water. Look what it says. Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. What's he talking about? Water. Why should you only have your own water and not share it, not have it go in the streets? Verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Do you see what he's talking about now? As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? You see, there's the proper context. In fact, here we find out that is actually very good, it's very natural, it's very normal. He says, you know what? Be enraptured with your wife. A man is going to love his wife and be enraptured by her, by her physically, by her body, and the woman, the man. And he says, that is the right view. That's the right context of uh, sex, of, of intercourse. Drink water only from your own cistern. It's your fountain, and you share it with only each other. But as you back up to the beginning of chapter 5, we find out um, the perversity of, of sexual sin and where it leads. Look at verse 1. My son, 
Pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding that you may preserve discretion and your lips may keep knowledge. Why? For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Here we have, here we have how sexual sin comes. It's deceitful. Oh, it looks good. It's enticing. Smooth. Oh boy, it's smooth. Her, her lips like are like honey, right? It's enticing. But what is the reality here? The end is bitterness. Bitter as wormwood. Look what he goes on to say in verse 5. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell. This is where it's going to lead. It looks this way, son. It's going to look enticing. It's going to come to you in a certain package. He says, you know what? In reality, it leads to bitterness, and ultimately, it leads to hell. You skip ahead in chapter 6. Again, warning his son to keep his commands because they're going to lead you. They're going to keep you. They're going to speak with you. They're going to remind you of the truth. Why? In verse 24, to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent." In fact, you look ahead to verse 32. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own what? Soul. He destroys himself, which is really going to be Paul's point here. It is a self-destructive sin. In fact, look again. Go to chapter 7, a big lengthy section here, beginning in verse 5 again, talking to his son to keep his understanding and, and, and treasure wisdom. In verse 5, he says that they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. And then he gives you an example. Here's, here's a picture, son. This is what it's going to look like. So you, when you see it, you'll know it. You'll recognize it. Pay attention to this. For at the window of my house, I looked through my lattice and saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths a young man devoid of understanding passing along the street near her corner, and he took the path to her house. There's the beginning there. That's the world's way. There's not real understanding there. That's the way of the the fool, right? Devoid of understanding. And so rather than avoid uh, those areas, this young man took the path, took the path to her house, just walking on by. And then in the twilight, in the evening, in the black, in the dark of the night, And there was a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. That's very revealing as well, right? The attire of a harlot, but a crafty heart. Outwardly, right? Seductive, but inside, oh, there's craftiness inside. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. At times, she was outside at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him. And with an impudent face, she said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I've paid my vows, so I can come out to meet you diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. Oh, that's a great excuse. Today, I went in, I paid my vows. I made my sacrifice. I asked forgiveness for my sins, right? My slate is clean. Let's go spread my bed with tapestry, right? I've colored them uh, with coverings of Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. 
right? I can go ask for forgiveness and make a new sacrifice next week, right? Let's just do this now. Why? Verse 19, for my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him and will come home on the appointed day. No one's going to know. There's nobody around. My husband's long gone, right? I've set this time for you. In fact, even my conscience is clear because I've made sacrifices, right? So it's all enticing and all, it all makes sense. In verse 21, with her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. And immediately he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks till an arrow struck his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. See, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, understood the damage that would be done. Ultimately, ultimately, it leads to self-harm. It's completely damaging. I remember one time I, I gave a, a, a sermon on, on sexual purity at our, at our home church in Grace Chapel. And right afterwards, I had a, a young lady. Uh, she just looked so, so young to me, but so weary and so um, burdened. And she was sobbing uncontrollably. And she began to tell me her story. And she had uh, married and she had divorced, but she had a, a child with that uh, partner. Then she had remarried and had two more children with that partner. That relationship wasn't working out, so she had left him, remained married, left him, went and shacked up with another man, had another child. And so she comes to church, and here we are talking about sexual purity, and she's just completely broken. And this is what she said to me. She says, I've caused so much damage. My life is beyond repair. She says, I, look at this. I've got a child from this guy, a child too. I, I, nobody can fix this. I'm, I'm damaged goods. And here was the amazing thing. At the time, our bookkeeper, um, who was a lovely lady, had come out of a, a similar past years prior to that, where she had a child from a man and then had another child later on. And, and God had so redeemed that situation when she gave her life to the Lord that she eventually married that first man. He, he became her husband. He gave his life to Christ. He actually began working at the maintenance staff uh, at, our, at our church. And God had just completely redeemed that situation. I said, you know what? Let me just introduce you to somebody. And I went down the hall and I, I brought her bookkeeper in. I said, you need to meet her and talk to her because your life is not beyond repair. But listen, there were consequences of her actions that she's going to carry with forever. The children are not the consequences. The Bible makes clear that they're the fruit, right? They're a reward, but they're going to suffer consequences as well. And she was burdened by that, right? Didn't know who was their father, who's coming and going. It was just an awful, awful uh, situation. And the warning is so clear from Proverbs that you, you can do that. And as a believer, yes, your sins are forgiven, past, present, future. Christ will forgive you. But is it damaging to you? Do you want to do that? What harm are you bringing upon yourself? Not to mention the harm into the church. Sexual sin can have consequences that can remain with you forever. And do not be deceived. It is extremely damaging. Second point, sexual sin is dominating. It's dominating. And that comes from the second half of verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Sexual sin is dominating. And that phrase, be brought under the power, is actually one word in the Greek. And it is... Exousiadso. Exousiadso. It means to hold the body subject to one's will. 
to have full and entire authority over the body. What is that? That's to be mastered. He says again, so all things are lawful for me, but, but listen, I won't be mastered by anything. And there is not a sin more enslaving than sexual sin. Let me give you an example. You, you can have a glass of wine at dinner and not become mastered by it. Drinking alcohol also is not a sin. Now, does it carry the potential of, uh, of mastering you? Well, certainly it does. You've got to be careful. But with sex outside of marriage, first of all, it is a sin. It is a sin. And secondly, when it is indulged, it controls. And it may begin with small indiscretions, but it easily leads to greater ones. How do I know this? Well, because that's the nature of sin. It's seen in Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, right? There you see the progression of sin. You're, you're, you're walking by, uh, and, that, and that's okay, but you're walking by, like that man who was walking through the harlot's neighborhood, you're walking by, but then pretty soon you're just standing there in the path of sinners, and then eventually you end up sitting among them. That is the progression of sin. So having a, a, a glass of wine isn't a sin. Can it lead to mastery? It can. But listen, indulging in, in sexual desire outside of marriage is a sin, and the pathway of that ultimately is to sit among them. It just naturally leads to that. Remember, the, the, the deceitful nature of sin. Um, sexual sin begins with that. And many in our culture today are, are deceived. They're deceived by believing that they're in control of their uh, thoughts and their actions when it comes to sexual sin. Well, it's my body. I'm totally in control of that. When in fact, they're actually, absolutely not. What, what are they in control of? Well, nothing. They're actually acting on the impulses of their passions and desires. So they're actually not in control of anything. They're submitting to the impulses of their desires. They're actually being mastered. They're not masters. They're being mastered. And they're deceived into thinking, I have complete control. No, you don't. You're a slave. You're being dominated by the flesh, which is why Paul says, don't give an opportunity to the flesh because it, it has the potential to dominate you. And that's what he's saying here. Yeah, all things are lawful for me. It might be perfectly legal. Uh, you, you, Christ might forgive you this, but... Will that eventually lead you to having a different master? Will that possibly master you more than Christ masters you? See, these people are under the power of the flesh, and they don't even know it. Flesh wants to dominate us. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. He says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Here we can see very clearly that God's will for us is sanctification. He wants us to abstain from sexual immorality. Why? We are to control our own vessels. Something vessels speaks there to wives. I think very clearly vessel speaks to your own body. That's the idea here. Control your own passions. Control your own desires. And when we don't do that, we're acting just like the Gentiles who do not know God. He says, don't come under the power of the flesh. Sexual sin, more than any other sin, is a fleshy, controlling sin, and it will master you. It seeks to dominate you. 
A third point here, and this is going to take up the rest of the passage, Paul's third point is sexual sin is distorting. It's distorting. So it's, 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 it's uh, damaging, it's dominating, and it's distorting. Look at verse 13. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now, this was another Corinthian slogan to justify their immorality. Food is made to satisfy, right? It's made to satisfy the cravings of the stomach. The stomach was made for what, right? To crave food. So when your stomach starts rumbling, which mine's starting to do just a bit, right? When it starts to do that, that is natural. It's biological. It craves food. Food was made to satisfy the craving. So you can see what they're, in fact, the Greek is very fun. The Greek is very literal. Food for the belly, belly for the food. That's what it says there. That's biology. And that's what they thought about sex as well. That's why they had the slogan, right? The body was created with a natural sexual desire. And when their bodies desired sex, then why shouldn't we just satisfy that desire? After all, food for the stomach and stomach for the foods. You see what they were saying? What is Paul's rebuttal to that? What do you say to that? Oh, it is biology. Wow, what do you say? Look what he says. But God will destroy both it and them. God's going to destroy the food and he's going to destroy the stomach. What's his point? Right? Yeah, it's true. Stomach was made for food and food for the stomach. But that relationship is temporal. It's going to be destroyed. That biological process will not be needed in the eternal state. I don't know what it's going to be like, but you don't need that biological process. I hope we get to eat something. But, but you see, to indulge in sexual sin is to buy into the lie that our bodies are just temporary There's nothing beyond this life. It's that age-old motto, right? You only have one life to live. Live it up. If it's your body, it's your life, right? Is that true? No, that's not true. It's a distortion of the truth. Distortion of the truth. And that's what sexual sin does. It distorts the truth. And Paul's going to give the Corinthians three truths. Rather than the untruths they're, they're quoting, three truths about the body which sexual sin seeks to distort. And the truth number one is this. The body is for the Lord. The body is for the Lord. Go back to verse 13. Second half of verse 13, right? Now, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now, this is a fundamental truth, which is very difficult, I think, for maybe newer believers to to grasp you come out of the world where the world's been shouting to you it's your body it's your choice right your power you do what you want um and and instead you've got to come into this idea of nope the body's not yours it belongs to someone else i remember we did a sexual purity seminar for uh parents of teens we had the parents and the teens uh come to this uh, seminar we had several um uh, sort of messages on that and then we did a q a panel and among the group of teens was a group of, of, of ladies, young ladies, that had come out of a ministry called Neighborhood Impact. We had moved in to an impoverished neighborhood as a church, taken a house there, and the county rented it to us very, very cheap. And we ran after-school clubs. We did Bible things, Bible lessons and stories there, and we did discipleship. And many of these young girls, African-American, Hispanic, came out of the, the lifestyles that would just shock you when you hear their stories, right? We talk about sexual relations and stuff, they grew up in households where that was just commonplace. That was happening between mom and boyfriend after boyfriend or, you know, whatever. And so to come out of that, get saved and come to a sexual purity seminar, you're hearing this stuff, your mind's blown. 
And then this is a Q&A thing. And a, and a lady rose up her hand. She goes, okay, but just tell me this. Why can't I do what I want to do with my body? After all, it's my body. Right away, me and the pastor next to me are flipping our path and we're going straight to 1 Corinthians 6. This is where we took it to. This is fundamental. This is where you start. I said, well, actually, you are uh, wrong there. That's the, the world thinking. That's where you've come from. Let me just now show you what Scripture says. You've got to completely twist around. His says the body is for the Lord. The body's for the Lord. And in fact, if that is the truth, you can't use it for whatever you want to use it for. You certainly can't use it for sexual morality. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, here's, here's what it says. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. There it is, right? He created everything. And not only did he create everything, it's by his will they continue to exist. And it's for him that they were created. We want to, as believers, honor and glorify him because we were created for the Lord. The body is for the Lord. We're his possessions. Romans 12, 1. One of the first verses I think you memorized when you become a believer. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I, that verse blew my mind when I first came across it. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, not a dead one. We don't offer uh, dead animals now. We offer ourselves to him. And he, what's he say? It's your reasonable service. I mean, it's after all, since I created you and it's by my will that you exist and it's for me that you exist, isn't that your reasonable service that you would just give me yourself? <laughs> That's what Paul's saying. So the Lord is for the body as well. So the, the body for the Lord, Lord for the body. Didn't Paul just make up his own slogan here? It does sound like it to me, right? They're going around saying, oh, the stomach for the food and food for the stomachs. And Paul says, no, the body for the Lord and Lord for the body. <laughs> I love it. He's like, I've got one you should memorize. Go around with that. Get a t-shirt with that on it. The body for the Lord. We're his possessions. But what about the Lord for the body? How is that true? Well, for his purposes. That's how. He is ours in order to achieve his own future purposes. The body is, is not temporal, right? He is ours so he can achieve what he wants for himself. In the future, verse 14, God both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us up by his power. He has a plan for you. Guess what it is? A resurrection, right? You're waiting to receive a glorified body, right? Dead saints before us will be re re resurrected and get new bodies. We'll go up in heaven and get a new body as well. And he has purposes for that. He has raised the Lord up and he's going to raise you up as well. But guess what? If you're a believer, you're not stopping that, nor do you want to. He has plans for you. It's his. So the Lord for the body, the body for the Lord, both are true. Romans 18, 11 promises us this resurrection. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you, right? That's the same thinking here. If, if, if he was raised from the dead by the spirit, that same spirit dwells in you, well, then you're certainly going to have a similar thing take place. Your mortal body, right, will have a new life, a glorified 
life. Now listen, it's not just that the Lord has purposes for you in the future, but he has purposes for you even now. And Paul gives us a few of them. One of those is union to himself, which is the second truth. The body is not only for the Lord, but the body is a member of Christ. Body is a member of Christ. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not, he says. Now here Paul begins with the do you not know phrases. Remember those from last time, the beginning of chapter 6? He mentions do you not know in verse 2 and in verse 3 and in verse 9. He is uh, re-educating them. They're ignorant spiritually, so he's saying you don't know these things. You don't know these things. That's another thing you don't know. You don't know that you are members with Christ. You're a member of him, right? We're not only for the Lord as his possession, but we are of the Lord as part of his own body. Now, I need to make a distinction here from other similar passages when I talk about we're members of his body, because that's certainly true corporately as a church, isn't it? Here's an example. Ephesians chapter 1, 22 to 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills in all. You see that? So, so Christ is the head. He's the head of the body. And who's the body? The church. We are. You see that? So that speaks of the collective body of Christ, the church. Uh, the idea of members of the body of Christ is also used later on in chapter 12 of, of 1 Corinthians. We'll be coming to that, you know, in a few, few uh, months, I imagine. He says, you're the body of Christ and members individually. And in that passage, he's going to talk about Christ being the head, like he does there in that Ephesians passage. And he's controlling the distribution of spiritual gifts to the collective body to be used for his service. Uh, Ephesians 5.30 uh, says members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. It's a similar uh, idea there. We're members of actually his flesh and, and body. But if you read Ephesians 5, what he's talking about is that saints are united to Christ as the bride. Do you remember that? There's that marriage picture. And again, it's the collective body of believers. Why am I sharing those things with you? Because it is quite different from what Paul is talking about here. Here in 1 Corinthians, he is actually talking about our actual physical bodies. This is not speaking of the corporate church. This is speaking of your physical body. Do you not know that your body, your personal body, your physical body are seen as, as members of Christ? The context here is, is what? Your conduct as a believer. How you conduct yourself, what you do with your body, you have to remember that it has been united with Christ. And his point here, although graphic, is, is clear here, right? He says, shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a, of a harlot? When, it, when a Christian commits sexual immorality because of his own personal union with Christ, he actually unites the, the, the person with whom he has committed sexual immorality with Christ. He unites him. And Paul says, should I do that? And what's his answer there? Certainly not. There's that phrase again, right? May it never be. It's unthinkable to him. And listen, it goes beyond an act that is simply biological. In fact, look what he says in verse 16. Or do you not know, here's that phrase again, don't you know, that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Now, 
he says, do you not know again? Because it's something the Corinthians are clearly not understanding. Paul says something pretty remarkable here, and it flies in the face of what the world believes about sex. It's a joining of two people into one person. The world does not comprehend that, but that is the truth. Sex makes, and marriage, makes two become one. As there's a bond that is formed. You say, well, how so? Well, obviously, Paul here is quoting from Genesis 2.24, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And we understand that passage to be speaking about a spiritual union. C.S. Lewis, in his day, understood that to be a spiritual union. He, he wrote this in his screw tape letters, said that a man, sorry, each time a man and a woman enter into a sexual relationship, a spiritual bond is established between them, which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. <laughs> All right? When a sexual relationship is entered into by a man and a woman, you either enjoy it forever or you endure it forever. But it needs to be a forever. And he's speaking about that spiritual bond. And that is true. That's what is taking place uh, there. But in C.S. Lewis's day, he did not know as much about the, the human brain as we do today. Did you know that it is more than a spiritual thing? Did you know that it actually is a biological thing as well? The two becoming one? There's a great um, broadcast that I have on CD. It was done by Family Life Today way back in 2008. And it was an interview with two OBGYN physicians, Dr. Frida Bush, and she was on the clinical faculty at the University of uh, Mississippi Medical Center, and she was on the Presidential Advisory Board for HIV and AIDS, and so was the other physician. His name was Dr. Joe McElhaney, and he's also the founder and chairman of the Medical Institute of Sexual Health in Austin, Texas. So this was their field of expertise, and they came together and they wrote a book called Hooked, Hooked, New Science on How Casual Sex is Affecting Our Children. You can look it up. That book was published in 2008. It's a book that's about the brain and how the brain is the more, most important sex organ because of the hormones that it creates during sex and other intimate acts. And I'm sure you've heard of it. It's, it's dopamine. It is a, a hormone that is released by the brain whenever you do anything exciting. You could be going downhill on a mountain bike and dopamine would be released because it's an exhilarating um, uh, activity. And that dopamine can produce addictive behavior. And more and more young people, uh, they revealed in the study, were engaging in sexual activity because they were after that, that rush, that fix from the dopamine that is released and, and most people are uh, well aware of that, 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 that kind of heady uh, rush that create kind of addictive behavior. But what most people are not aware of are the other home hormones that are secreted by the brain. And one of them is oxytocin. Uh, both have it, male and female, but women have more receptors to it. And it's a hormone that's commonly referred to as the love hormone or the cuddle hormone. So I guess here in Wales, we could call it the kutch uh, hormone. But sexual activity releases oxytocin in the brain. And what it does, it, it creates emotional bonds between partners and synapses between the neurons where those hormones flow and those impulses are going. They're either strengthened or they're weakened. See, they're strengthened in 
a marriage. When sex is enjoyed, that activity strengthens the bond. That's a biological thing that happens by that hormone that is released. But breaking those bonds can cause depression, can make it harder to bond with someone else in the future because you hook, you attach, you detach, you hook, you attach, detach with multiple sexual partners. And it shows that that bond is weakened and weakened over time. And studies show that as a result of of sexual uh, uh, promiscuity, the bond between two people then um, can be very, very weak to the point where uh, that person will unlikely bond with any one partner in the, the, the future. That bond that God has created to be there is actually weakened. But in a marriage between one man and one woman, as God designed, that, that is actually strengthened. And so when we engage in sexual activity, God has actually hardwired our bodies to bond with that other individual. So the two becoming one flesh is not just spiritual. It actually is biological. It's meant to be. And this is why Paul says, he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her. Because you could certainly say, oh, you could have a one night stand with a prostitute, but I haven't enjoyed anything spiritually. There's no spiritual bond. No, but there was a physical one. There was a biological one. And each time you attach and detach, damage is done. There was a great illustration given in the movie Fireproof. I recommend it. It's a great uh, movie about marriage. And a, a, a Christian man is trying to witness to another man who's struggling in his marriage to give him an example of how damaging the split would be. He glues a salt and pepper shaker together. And then he says, hey, can you separate those for me? He said, could you separate those without doing damage to one or the other? He, he says, well, no. I mean, one of them's going to break. Exactly. That's exactly what's going to happen when you break this marriage bond because your body has joined together. A bond has formed. And Paul says the same thing here. It goes way back into scripture. If you join to a harlot, you're one body with her. So would you take your body, which is a member of Christ, and join it to a harlot? Certainly not. Certainly not. But look what he says in verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Hmm. It is true that our bodies are his, but we join to him in spirit. We're one spirit with him. We become one flesh with our marriage partner, but with Christ, we are one spirit. Our members are part of him, but we're one in spirit. We don't physically become one in him, but we do spiritually. His life is seen as our life, isn't it? Galatians 2, uh, 20, right? Speaks about that. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives lives in me. The life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the idea here. So, what do you do then? If it's so damaging, so destructive, so distorting, what do you do when you get into a situation where sexual temptation might come? Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Flee it, he says. Run away like Joseph did from Potiphar's wife. Just get out of there. Why? Because of the destructive nature of sexual sin. Because it's so damaging. You have to run away from it. Do not think that you'll somehow be able to bear up under this. I'm going to show my spiritual strength and I'm going to bear it. No, run, get away. Don't even, don't even walk down that neighborhood. Don't even turn on that channel. Don't even go, go through that. You have to be so, so careful today. And I've heard so many times the argument that, well, it's just more prevalent today, it's more accessible today. 
Listen, it was no less prevalent or accessible in the day of Corinth. You could have prostitutes on every corner. It was, it was just as so today. The difference is you're not fleeing. <laughs> People need to flee it. You know where those traps are. Don't go there. Run away. And then Paul says, every sin that a man does is outside the body. Paul doesn't explain his meaning there. But I think that his next comment and the remaining verses help us figure it out. And I think the idea is that, that sins generally are committed against others, aren't they? Murdering, lying, coveting, stealing, right? But, but sexual sin is the one sin that really, really harms ourself. It's so damaging to our bodies, physically even, venereal diseases and things that come through, but emotionally and spiritually, internally just destroys the person. It's not the worst sin that there is. It's just, it's just the most unique in its ability to cause self-harm. So flee it. It's such a damaging, dominating, and distorting sin. Now, now not only is the body for the Lord, not only is the, the body a member of Christ, but his third truth, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 19. Or do you not know, again, don't you know this, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Here Paul introduces the idea of the believer as a temple. He did mention it back in chapter 3, verse 16. He said, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? But there he was referring, I think, more uh, to them corporately again as a church. Like we're all the temple because he was talking about them being a building. But here it's clear that Paul means each and every individual a believer contains the Holy Spirit. You are a temple for him. That is what Jesus promised in John 14, 17. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Holy Spirit, he's going to be in you. You're his temple. And what's the connotation here? It's actually quite graphic. Would you commit sexual immorality in a temple? Let's bring it closer to home. Could you fathom the thought of something like that taking place in the sanctuary at Cornwall Street Baptist Church? That's what Paul is saying. He's trying to shock there. He's like, you're the temple. Would you do that in a temple? Would you do that in a place that you come to worship? The thought of it's just appalling to us, but that was what Paul's saying. That's what happens when believers engage in sexual immorality. They're committing that offense in his very temple. And Paul reminds them, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. What price were you purchased at? Remember, you weren't purchased with corruptible things like silver or gold, but you were purchased with the spotless blood of Jesus Christ. You were purchased with something very, very valuable. And I think one of the destructive doctrines which are condemned in Scripture is the doctrine that says you're your own. You, you were never bought. You are your own master. Peter warns about it and talks about false prophets coming among the people and they're going to teach uh, destructive heresies. And he says, even denying the Lord who bought them. There's no Lord that bought you. All things are lawful for you. Those who are all about the liberty care nothing for holiness. The Corinthians misunderstood their freedoms and many Christians today, I think, do as well. The battle for sexual purity is heavy, heavy, heavy against Christians. 
It's heavy against your children. Parents, if you have not yet begun to shape a biblical uh, view of, of sex in the minds of your kids, the world will happily do it for you. Do, do not relegate that duty to the world. They will give them a distorted view of that. You must, you must teach them the truth about this. The church must battle against this, and we must come together to do this. Listen, this is not an individual affair. It is a corporate affair. And I know people shy away from these things here. Um, sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife, that's a private affair. I'm not talking about that. But sexual immorality and the battle for purity, that's a corporate one. We come together corporately to battle against that. That's why we're so adamant about our marriage seminars and our parenting, because we have to come together to do this. And Hebrews chapter 12, 14 to 16, warns us and, uh, and um, commends us in this way. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Look at all the annies there as a church, right? Don't let anyone fall short of the grace. Don't let any root of bitterness come up. Don't let any be defiled or any fornicator in the church. We must come together to do this together. We, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, Paul says in Romans 12, 5. We have a responsibility to protect the purity of the church because the church is to glorify God in our body and in our spirit, verse 20 says, which both belong to him. Both. Not only is your body his, but your spirit as well. Many are willing to give their spirit to him. Oh yeah, my spirit goes to be with you, but while I'm here on earth, I'm going to use my body in the way I desire. No, you just can't. Your body is for the Lord. The Lord's for the body. You're a member of him. Your body's a temple. Paul reminds this ignorant church of those fundamental truths. And if you're someone watching today and you're thinking, well, that's just fine with, you know, things like adultery. But what about if you've been with someone? You, you both are Christians. You both agree to do this, and you're both spiritually mature, and you can handle it. I've heard that rationalized. So we can be involved sexually, even though we're not married, or you're living uh, together, or you plan to get married. Because we plan to get married, we're going to listen. I'm going to say, that is, that is cheating around. That is not marriage. God is not honoring that. There's one condition and one only, and Hebrews tell, tells us, the marriage bed undefiled. Marriage bed undefiled. If there's not a marriage, then your bed is defiled. Do you see that? Don't fall into that. Listen, no one's here to condemn, but we are here to watch and be careful and fight for purity in the church. And if you've been struggling in those areas, here's what I, here's what I would say. I would say, number one, go to a trusted brother or sister in Christ and confess those things and, and seek help. How can I get out of this? I think I've shared this before, but I remember I had a couple come up to us after uh, a message on sexual purity, literally tell me, hey, we've been living together. We didn't even realize it. We just, we had no clue we were in sin. And we, we see it now. We're in sin. What should we do? We said, well, you should get married. <laughs> well, how fast? Like, as fast as you can. Like, or, or separate until you can get, get, can get married. And this happened on two occasions. One time, it was the very next day, we did a, we did a wearing set, wedding ceremony in the office building, right? All the people working in the office were the witnesses. They were so, so adamant about, I just want to do what's right before the Lord. 
Another time, it wasn't until the weekend, but they actually separated for that week until they could plan the wedding and have it that weekend. But the Lord convicted them through his truth. And listen, that's all. It is. I have no agenda here other than to teach God's word. I know nothing about anybody's immorality or fidelity or anything like that. As far as I know, I'm ignorant of those things. But the Holy Spirit isn't. And that's why he brings us to passages like this. And we just have to be faithful to teach through them, right? And when people are struggling in those areas, I have to remember, hey, listen, we're human. People will struggle and we will work through those things. But listen, repentance is the way through that and seeking the glory of the Lord. Why? Because you're not your own. Your body's not your own and either is your spirit. All is for him and for his glory. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for this amazing time in your word. And Lord, I know we've gone long today, but I, I pray that your people were attentive in hearing your word. And Lord, we just want your glory. That's, that's what we want. It's your church, Lord, and you've called us to glorify you in the church. And I just pray that you would help people, particularly our young people today who are so struggling, I'm sure, in these, these areas of fighting for sexual purity when the world um, is constantly crying out a different message that it's just okay and it's so easy to go along with the world. Oh, but Lord, I just pray that we would have people so filled with your spirit, so desiring to um, glorify you, Lord, that they would resist those temptations. They would not believe those untruths, that they remember the truths that we've learned today, you know, that, that, that the body is for the Lord, that we are members of Christ, united with him, and that our body is literally a temple in which the Holy Spirit resides. What an amazing truth. And God, I just pray that we would live this week even mindful of these wonderful truths. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.